Take a network break. Make sure to punch your card for listening to today's show because you can get a free virtual donut for every 10 episodes you download. We're going to talk about new products from Cisco and HP Aruba, some Intel financial engineering, a bunch of space networking, and more. Mark your calendar for Capacity's Connected Enterprise event in Chicago starting November 7th. This live event is a platform for CIOs, CISOs, CTOs, and IT managers to learn from each other and make sure they can manage their networks and deliver enterprise connectivity in an age of remote work, cloud adoption, cyber threats, and sustainability. You can register at events.com capacitymedia.com slash IRNV1N or look for the uh, Connected Enterprise event in Chicago at capacitymedia.com. Uh, stick around for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation where we talk with Palo Alto Networks about SD-WAN for retail locations, so from securing payment card data to supporting customer Wi-Fi to connecting a multitude of IoT devices, a robust, reliable WAN is a must for retail, and we talk with uh, Palo Alto about how SD-WAN can help retail locations deliver a better in-store experience. All right, let's get into the news. Uh, several weeks ago, we talked about a Cisco and Nutanix teaming up around hyperconverged infrastructure. That partnership has now yielded a new product family called Cisco Compute Hyperconverged with Nutanix. The product family combines Cisco's UCS hardware and Cisco software, including Intersight uh, for SaaS-based management and ACI for networking. Nutanix is bringing its AVH hypervisor to the table along with Nutanix Cloud Manager and Nutanix Unified Storage. Yeah, so we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago about Cisco and Nutanix announcing a new global partnership. And we talked about how we felt that this was Cisco basically abandoning its own attempts to make a virtualization platform in rationalizing its way and saying like, VMware is not necessarily the best partner for us and certainly not the only partner, especially with the upcoming changes with Broadcom. And I also think the big decision that's probably impacting Cisco is the HP GreenLake, which has shown that it's a real success with customers, um, that HP is making green. I'm sure if you had inside sales information from Cisco, who's out there talking to its customers, HP is taking away Cisco's data center business. People are losing, they're losing that switching market, losing that service market as HP GreenLake just locks them out of those accounts. And I'm sure they, that this is a response, or in my my opinion, this is a response to that. Um, so when we talked about the Nutanix thing, what's become clear to me is that this is probably something that's been in the pipeline for a while. When, you, when, when I look at this, this looks really deep, doesn't it? Because there's a lot of collateral. We've seen white papers, uh, architecture guides, migration guides. And I think this is something that's probably been in the works for some time. I, I suspect internally Cisco might have made a thought, well, might have thought about making a play to buy Nutanix, and then at some stage it pulled out, and but still went ahead with the global partnership. But that would be just a guess. That's not based on any knowledge, insider knowledge or anything. So yeah, I, I think there's a there's a lot more going here. I think Cisco might actually be seriously committed to this. Yeah, uh, they were definitely underperforming in the HCI market. According to IDC in 2022, VMware had 41% of the market share. Nutanix had uh, almost 25%. HPE had 7%. And Cisco was lumped in with, quote, the rest of the market. <laughs> um, so uh, it, it, clearly uh, they can't partner with VMware, so they're partnering with number two, Nutanix, uh, to get the market share that they weren't getting uh, on their own. So I guess, mm. you know, from a fiscal perspective, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I guess Nutanix must be looking at HPE GreenLake and Dell Apex, which are, you know, they've got their own hypervisors. They're sometimes they're VMware, sometimes they're not. Um, and and this is probably a better way for Cisco to go because they've got a differentiated solution. It's, you know, their own thing. Cisco is very much about embracing customers' complete IT budget that is sucking in all of the, do you know what I mean? Like not, right. yeah, they don't like customers to go outside. Cisco 
you know, in the old days, it was HP sold the servers, Cisco sold the network, you know, Microsoft sold the software and VMware sold the hypervisors. And there was kind of a, a cordial entente and now it's a much more competitive space. So mm-hmm. I think Cisco's realized that, you know, they can't just buy a HTI and then for customers will actually buy it in any serious volume. And I think this is a scale market. Cisco doesn't want to be investing resources in research and development and writing code and a maintenance mechanism for something that's got a one or 2% market share and there's no potential for growth. And yeah, and and this makes sense. I think customers would probably be better served getting away from a, a very, very niche. I think also professional services, you've got to think about people who commit their uh, careers to a particular product. You know, people have still in the IT industry, you can't say I'm a virtualization engineer. You say, I work on Cisco's HCI. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. who wants to be that? You know, whereas if you say I'm a VMware person, that's portable. If I'm a Nutanix person, what, 25% of the market, that's reason to be portable too. Yeah. Um, it's still a, a very small market. According to those IDC numbers, annual revenue for 2022 was uh, $10.2 billion. Uh, so that it was up 10% year over year. So that's, I guess, the kind of, it's not huge growth, but it is some growth. And so I guess Cisco sees it's enough of a market that they want to be in, but not maybe big enough that it would be worth them out and out buying Nutanix. Yeah, well, Nutanix is sitting on a lot of debt. So it spent a lot of money to build market share. It's It still spends very heavily on Salesforce. It, it drives a very... Uh, as I understand it from its uh, financial reports, it's still very heavily spending on sales. And while it's making a profit, it's only still sitting on debts up for accumulated over a decade of growth. So it's not necessarily a profitable company in the sense or, you know, a company worth buying in unless you believe it's got more growth at this particular point in time. But, you know, $10.2 billion in revenue is a significant company for Nutanix. And of course, but Cisco has just decided to sp- splunk splurge. Can you splurge on splunk? Can you splunk? Splurge? You can splunk down twenty eight billion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> splurge on splunk. Yeah, there's a lot of. <laughs> yeah. So I think Cisco's basically put all of its cash into splunk to make a significant thing. It may be that they'll buy Nutanix in the future. You know, if it works out and the the partnerships there, then Cisco might want to start uh, taking on some debt. And Cisco historically hasn't uh, made moves where it involves taking on actual debt, like taking debt from the open market. It tends to buy out of cash flow. Uh, the splunk deal is. Uh, not particularly taking on much debt. It's not extending the company particularly. They've got a substantial cash pile, some debt in there. Maybe when they've sold that off, they might want to come back around on Nutanix. We'll see. We'll see. I guess it depends on how successful it is. Um, VMware and Broadcom, we might actually see a stumble here. Where Uh And if that's the case, then Cisco and Nutanix would be well positioned to make a move in that space potentially. Maybe maybe that's a a factor in in this whole process. Yeah, we know Cisco's good at selling, so it's you know good for Nutanix to be latched onto the Cisco wagon in that regard. And as a reminder, Cisco has released an end-of-life roadmap for its own Hyperflex uh, HCI product line. So if you are bought into that, uh, there's a link in the show notes because you're going to want to have an exit strategy. I noticed that Cisco's also abandoned all of its uh, cloud plat- like AWS platforms. What I'm saying there is all of their VM, their multi-cloud stuff is now Nutanix. So if you want to be doing multi-cloud, managing VMs in AWS and so forth, then you actually do that with Nutanix's cloud platform. So that is now, if in, in terms of compute uh, multi-cloud, that's how you do it, is with Nutanix, not via Cisco tools. It's had a, it made several attempts. I, I can think of about a half a dozen off the top of my head to try and build a, uh-huh. you know, a VM manager that spans on-prem and off-prem, and it really didn't go very well. So I think if you're a customer of Cisco's HCI trying to do multi-cloud, you'd be pretty pleased about the Nutanix alternative. Uh, if you don't, you know, assuming you don't switch over to VMware or 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 go to GreenLake, say. So. Right. 
All right, links in the show notes if you want more details. We'll move on. Uh, HPE Aruba has announced a new hardware sensor to measure the performance of Wi-Fi 6E networks. The hardware sensor is part of a broader platform that HPE Aruba calls User Experience Insight, or UXI. It includes sensors, testing agents, and a cloud-based dashboard. Uh, according to the announcement, quote, the sensors and agents act like end users on the network and run synthetic tests to capture the network and application performance from an end user's perspective, end quote. Uh, test results and performance analysis get displayed in the dashboard. Uh, this new sensor is a hardware sensor. It can monitor uh, the 6 gigahertz tri-band that's 2.4, 2.4, 5, and 6 gigahertz. It comes in two models, each of which is running a Linux OS. Uh, one of the models includes a cellular, cellular radio, so engineers and admins can still reach the sensor if the Wi-Fi network or the backhaul connection goes down. So uh, apparently at HPE, you can spell D-E-M as U-X-I. Does that... <laughs> right. Digital experience <laughs> Digital monitoring experience. is U-X-I, yeah. yes. So there's a couple of things about this which really strikes me. This is, uh, this is a, a custom-made hardware sensor which does two things. One is it monitors application performance. So that's traditional digital experience monitoring. And for any mm-hmm. sort of digital experience monitoring platform, you have to have an agent that goes out and runs probes across the network. And that can be, you know, as basic as pings to making HTTP requests to going up to much more sophisticated uh, application calls. You know, you can query databases and, and query the web servers and measure the response times. And then, of course, you can feed all of that into some sort of AI, ML, deep learning type platform in the cloud. And you can start to make, you know, intelligent analytics out of that and say, hang on, this server is now... You know, before we used to talk about DEM, we used to talk about once it went goes below a certain threshold, it would trigger alert. Well, we, that's not what we want anymore. We want some sort of um, intelligence around that that would actually allow us to do m- much better things. I think the unique thing here is that this is also doing Wi-Fi. So this is actually monitoring the spectrum. So not only is it doing the application performance and the network connectivity performance and all that basic monitoring type stuff, it actually looks like it's monitoring the actual spectrum itself. Yeah, it's doing uh, an analysis of the Wi-Fi environment. It's looking at um, the off-band monitoring. It's doing client monitoring. So yes, in addition to application performance, it's also giving you a better picture of the wireless experience in that location. Yeah. And, you know, and it's got all of the digital experience things. I think, I mean, I see digital experience monitoring as a very long-term, slow growth market. I don't think this is something that customers are going to leap onto as an instant value proposition in that sense. Um it's something that's going to creep in over time. I do think there's definitely a market for it in specific, if I'm a service provider or managed service provider and I'm putting networks out there and I need a way to not have people on site or inside the company who have, like usually the people who work inside a company have context. They know what an application looks like or they know what users are like and they understand if you're going to do a managed, you know, managed network monitoring service, these are the sorts of tools that you like that you need to be able to do that. So I think Dem is going to right. be, you know, there's an instant mark there. You know, I'm going to take a managed service contract. Well, I'm going to put these probes all the way around the place. Especially, I'm thinking GreenLake, right? If you're going to provide a managed GreenLake service, <laughs> maybe you want one of these, right? You know, want to put these around so that you can get visibility into how that branch is working, or is this new service, this this new custom application that you're buying? You know, this Oracle that you've just deployed. What's the performance of that? So. It's not new. The idea of placing devices at the edge of the network and configuring them to run regular probes has been around for 30 years. However, new things here are small devices, running off batteries, low power. This thing's powerful enough. It's a Linux server built from the ground up. It's got a 5G backup, for goodness sakes. Like This is actually the whole deal. So I think this is super, super interesting. I think Aruba's done a great thing here. 
It says uh, the sensor can also do local on-demand packet capture uh, if there's a, a flow or a transaction that you want to dig into actual packets uh, to troubleshoot or investigate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you also get that feature as well. That's, That's quite a thing, cool. right? All yeah, that. Yeah, I wonder what the price is. <laughs> I mean, there's another way to look at this is that sometimes a sign that a given technology is maturing is that products start to meet, you know, merge that address niche applications in a te- of that technology, like this Wi-Fi 6E. They talk about it being the first Wi-Fi 6E standard sensor. I think that's a mistake to focus on its Wi-Fi capabilities. I think they should be focusing on the, the digital experience monitoring and how deep that goes, including Wi-Fi 6E. But, you know, you, you do you. Um, but I the other thing that it says here is that it could be a sign that the technology has gotten ahead of what customers want. How many customers are out there buying Wi-Fi 6E? And of course, if you're a vendor and you've got all this Wi-Fi 6E technology and software and everything, you're thinking, how do I recover the cost of developing it? I'll start making these products that fit into little niches. So it could be could be two things happening here. Like, you know, I've got all of these Wi-Fi 6E chipsets. What am I going to do with them? <laughs> <Sorry. Right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good second use case. All right, uh, moving on, Intel is going to carve off its Programmable Solutions Group, or PSG, as a standalone business in January of 2024. The uh, Programmable Solutions Group includes Intel's FPGA business. Intel says it plans to conduct an IPO for the standalone business in the next few years while retaining a majority stake. Uh, so the PSG, Programmable Solutions Group, is mostly the Altera FPGA business that Intel acquired in 2016. But my understanding is that this also now includes Intel's DPU efforts and the Barefoot Tofino chipset. So there's a networking angle here. Intel stopped uh-huh. development of the Barefoot technology, the Tofino and the P4 and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it has been included I imagine that it's been kept in place because it did sell those chipsets to companies and they were still uh, supplying the chipsets to companies that wanted to make switches based around that technology, even if it's getting a little older. Um, So it is gone in in here. So there is a chance that the PSG might still be able to do something with DPUs. Um, But I believe that Intel has sort of mostly abandoned its efforts to develop a DPU at this time and is pulling back towards its core business of CPUs. Now, keep in mind that over the last 10 years before Pat Gelsinger was called back, Intel was basically working on a financial engineering model. Everything it did was, it's got to be financial. It's got to be profitable. And if it's not profitable, so that leads to this sort of like, how do we reduce costs? How do we focus on just one thing? And at some point, this means your technical debt and your technology debt builds up to the point. And then competitors emerge. Like, look at what happened to IBM. IBM was uh, under Ginny Rometty was financially engineered for two decades before the company finally ran out of technology to sell. They'd ran out of that innovation. So in this case, what they're doing, or what I believe they're doing is Intel saying, we want to focus on our core business. We've also got a problem where the people in the company are a bit stagnant, a bit stuck, but they're not like other companies. You can just say, well, let's just fire everybody and then rehire them again, because that can generate (laughs) change in the workforce sometimes. And uh, what they're doing here is saying, well, what we're going to do is we're going to spin it out. We're going to put it out on its own and give everybody a wake-up call. And they might, uh, they need money. They need money to invest in new fabs. They need to move fabrication from uh, China and Taiwan, particularly. They need to build more fabs. They have failed to invest in building more manufacturing capacity. They still believe that they've got a viable technology that companies want to buy that, you know, they'll bring their chips to them. So if they can get an investor to buy 40%, you know, some percentage of PSG, they can take that cash and then invest that into some other part of the business that is that it you know needs that money or is potentially more profitable for them. Uh, and I hope that that 
it would give them a chance to turn it around. So, you know, if you've got a workforce of all these highly specialized chip makers, not exactly you can't fire them and then hire them back like you can a, a programmer in PHP or, you know, somebody who writes Rust code sure. or specializes in data center. But that's very specialized talent. Yeah, it's very that you specialized. Want to hold on you to, know, yeah. Somebody comes out of a university with a talent. So Intel can't let them out because if it does too, its competitors will snap them up. Right. So, that yep. could be bad because there's plenty of manufacturing fabs being built like TSMC in Arizona, which we've talked about. Wouldn't they love to offer some of those jobs to people out of Intel and say, <laughs> why don't you come down to, to our new factory? And sure. yeah, yeah, you get yeah. the idea. Yeah. 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 So Intel says the goal is to give this new standalone company more autonomy and flexibility. So, you know, code reading is, you know, Intel is very big. And so there can be uh, slowdowns in trying to get new products and services off the ground. So uh, by making it standalone, you sort of hmm. uh, can streamline those decision making processes. Uh, it also will give the new company uh, opportunity to attract new public and private investment, which means this new company can take on debt that's not sitting on Intel's books mm -hmm. uh, while they still retain majority share. So they yeah. can take some profit without taking as much. And risk. they can get out side of Intel's buying process and hiring process and, you know, make changes to the, you know, get and give the staff the message that this is a new start and yeah. make it really real. Yeah. I think that's more of the yep. intent here than to sell off the business. I don't think Intel wants to sell off its DPU. It knows it needs that technology long-term, but it also knows that whatever they've got right now, they need to focus on getting their CPUs back on the game and getting their AI GPUs back on top because that's where the money is right now. Yeah, Intel's also done this before. Uh, it executed a similar maneuver with Mobileye that makes uh, chips and software in the driver assistance and autonomous vehicle space. So it does uh, have a model and a track record with this kind of financial engineering. Wow, they've been trying to sell Mobileye quite a while. <laughs> Every time they tried to list it, something went against them. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Connected Enterprise. Uh, it's a live event launching on November 7th in Chicago. If you're a CIO, a CISO, a CTO, a network manager, or an IT infrastructure, operations, security, or procurement manager, the show is tailored to your interests. You can network with industry peers, learn and share insights on how to manage your networks effectively, learn about new technologies and software, hear about other companies' successes and failures, and rub shoulders with the likes of WeWork, Zoom, and KBC Bank USA. It's an enterprise-led agenda. Capacities Connected Enterprises packed with case studies, keynote presentations, panel discussions, and roundtable sessions on network architecture builds and designs, security, and partnerships. Capacities Connected Enterprise will answer essential questions. Is your company's IT strategy still relevant? Do you have the right architecture and design? Are your company's networks secure? And are you getting the most out of your partnerships? So don't miss out on the chance to gain valuable insights, knowledge, and connections that can transform the future of your enterprise. Register for this live event at events.capacitymedia.com slash IRNV1N uh, or look for the uh, Connected Enterprise at events.capacitymedia.com or for, find the link in the show notes for episode 450. Mm. Uh, let's get back to the news. Uh, Cisco's once again renaming its product categories. A couple of years ago, the company changed its categories uh, that it reports to Wall Street to things like Internet for the Future and Optimized Application Experiences and Secure Agile Networks. Uh, it's now doing away with all that and returning to simpler, more clear descriptions, which are networking, security, collaboration, observability, and services. Yeah, and when they changed, I think we made fun of it, Drew. I think I think I poked fun of it. I hope we did. I'd be disappointed if we yeah, hadn't. Yeah, because it really felt like I, I distinctly remember us you know, making allegories to a drunk marketing person got into the uh, fun into the financial suite and started convincing him that it wasn't enough to call it networking. It should be internet for the future. And uh, I, we're, we're missing a branding opportunity here. Yeah. Let's uh, take um, these boring old categories and zazz them yeah, up. Yeah, the, the financial analysts I've spoken to were, were pretty unimpressed about the whole thing. 
And I think that uh, they've made a point of raising this every time they talk to Cisco. And uh, so eventually I think the the, the the weight of that finally got back to it. Uh, Cisco does actually describe this fairly clearly. And the, the, there's not too much to say about this. And, it's th- you know, networking is networking, security is security. Collaboration is collaboration and observer. So collaboration is WebEx, of course. And the right. contact center, so what remains of the voice voice IP telephony stuff. Um, the observability, of course, is app dynamics and thousand eyes so far. Uh, whether well, I'm not sure where Splunk would go in there. Maybe Splunk goes into observability. Maybe it goes into security. It's a little bit hard because it could be both in in some ways. Yep. But for that, sure. you know, who knows where it's going to be? Uh, I think the thing that I noticed m- more than anything else is that security now includes SASE. Um, so I think what Cisco is eventually re- is realizing or, or belatedly recognizing is that underlay networking is one thing and overlay networking is a different thing. And this is what we've seen from from Fortinet and Palo Alto and all the other SASE players is they've been able to say, sure, routers, we don't need them. We just need SD-WAN and we put SASE on top of it. We integrate all that security and that's a growth market. And Cisco, I think, is nodding to that and saying, okay, we're going to lift out all of the SASE, and that's now going to be part of the security business unit. So that makes sense. SASE is a security technology. It's also a networking technology, but that's not what it's primarily being sold as or being consumed by customers as. So there's a chance for Cisco here to get some revenue growth here and start looking like it's competing with those security companies because Cisco's reputation had taken a bit of a battering because Palo Alto and Fortinet have been able to grow 10x while Cisco's security has actually grown, you know, not at all, maybe 20 or 30% over the same sort of time frame. So Cisco, by lifting the SD-WAN into that business unit, is going to pump up its security numbers quite nicely. Uh, but I also hope that internally the business units start cooperating better so that the SASE and the umbrella and the you know the, the detection and response and right. you know, all that stuff becomes unified instead of quite obviously this part of the company doesn't talk to this part of the company sort of thing, which I've heard so often from people. Or that the solution they roll out in that space is just uh, a whole bunch of disparate products duct taped together. That's not going to work. No, well, so many people say that you know the Cisco SD WAN is much more of a routing thing than a security thing. And mm-hmm. if you just want to do networking, then Cisco SD WAN is your thing. But it, but people don't necessarily buy Cisco's umbrella because it's just not integrated with the with the SD WAN product very well at all much easier for them apparently from what i hear for people to go and buy it from somebody else like you know uh cloudflare you know and so forth yeah 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 i just like to note that um this is a victory for clarity and we need more of it in the space Uh, just a reminder to any marketing or pr people from vendors who might be listening simple clear direct language that tells you what a product is and what a product does is much more valuable to your customers or potential customers than buzzwords market chasing and all the you know broke gilding that infests most vendor output so uh, if clarity is good enough for wall street analysts it's good enough for your customers please embrace clarity Every time I used to read an article about, you know, somebody commenting on Cisco's financial results, they'd say, we have no idea what's included in this part of the portfolio. I, I have to wonder how many analysts were like, now what's in internet for the future <laughs> right, again? Yeah. What, what, what is yeah, that? Right. What's a secure so, yeah. agile network versus internet for the future? So, right. So, exactly. <laughs> and is secure agile networking networking or does it also yeah. have security? I, that, that was ridiculous. It's also interesting so. that Campus and Data Center and Meraki and Routed Optical Networking, they're all one thing now. So that's going to be, I think uh-huh. internally to Cisco, that's going to increasingly be, you know, usually these financial things reflect the internal organization of the company as well. And if uh-huh. they don't, they will, 
because if you've got to report the numbers this way, generally it, right. that's what happens internally. So that's how things will align. Yeah, it yeah. flies down through the organization. So I, I think there'll be a significant transition over time. We do know that Cisco has, of course, been com- you know converging all these business units under much a much more unified leadership, and I think customers will welcome that. And I think it's gr- it's good for customers. All right, moving on, uh, Google has announced new email validation requirements for bulk senders. The requirements are going to go into place starting February of 2024. Uh, those requirements include email authentication, one-click unsubscribing, and tighter thresholds on spam rates. Uh, Google classifies a bulk sender as an organization that sends 5,000 or more messages to Gmail addresses in one day. So the angle here is that if you are a corporation and you're running an email server, I assume that most of you aren't but uh, by this point in time, but for those of you who are, Cisco's making changes to enforce the SPF, DKIM, and DMARC records for your MTAs, right? So mm-hmm. if you do not have your DNS absolutely on point, you're going to struggle to send emails. I think this is limited just to bulk senders, that is people who do uh, 5,000 messages from a single email address, right? So if you're MailChimp or Beehive or somebody like that. Oh, speaking of Beehive, we just switched our email, our uh, human infrastructure magazine newsletter, which you, if you've subscribed to that, has switched from MailChimp to Beehive. And if you actually, uh, there's some suggestions that it might be getting caught up in spam filters in that transition. So do go out and check that if you're listening. Uh, make sure we're not suddenly being classed because we've switched from MailChimp to Beehive. Um I think that this might be an issue for corporations. So if you're still running your own mail server, hosting your own MTA, check your DNS is absolutely perfect. You know, you've got to have it absolutely flawless. There are online tools that let you check it, but then also make sure that you're aware of what Google is doing here so that if you are, you know, using your own mail server to send a mail shot to all of your customers, maybe it's only 10,000, but if it's, if it, that may be an issue for you if you're actually hosting your own mail list from within your own infrastructure, go to work on that. I do welcome this by the way, what this does mean that if in Google's enforcing this, it makes it much harder for people to spoof IP addresses or sit on unused mm-hmm. BGP range, IP address ranges and just random domains and do spam in, on bulk. It makes it a lot more difficult for spammers to get through. Um, and at this point, I think any of these protections that it's putting in place are not unreasonable. I mean, SPF and DKIM have been around well more than a decade. So it's not like this is a new or untested uh, or frankly, even that difficult technology to employ. And Google even has links to Mm -hmm. resources to help you get it up and running because uh, you want to make sure that all of your mail is in the ham category, not the spam category. And frankly, you know, 5,000 Gmail addresses one day, that's uh, to me a pretty low number to be considered bulk, Mm -hmm. but great on Google for doing it because it's better for everyone if if we can more easily identify the the clean email from all the junk. And for all intents and purposes, Cisco Gmail is the dominant destination. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can only you know make that demand on Gmail on accounts that it hosts, but still that is by and large the bulk of email today. So they can effectively dictate the market here. So yeah. Yeah. And they're using their power for good here, which we'd like to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on, a company called AST Science says it has demonstrated the first ever 5G cell phone call from a satellite to a phone. A little bit of an exaggeration, but okay, let's run with it. Uh, basically, what they've done here is <laughs> taken a, a standard handset out into a remote region of Hawaii, I believe, somewhere around Maui, they said in the video that I watched, mm-hmm. held up a perfectly standard handset and was able to make a 4G, 5G call and to be able to transfer data. They're claiming at up to 14 megabits per second. Now, this follows previous tests for voice calls, so they've been able to make voice calls for a while, but with specialized phones, now they're doing it with just standard handsets. The way that they're doing this is they're launching a a particular satellite 
which um, has this massive st- massive antenna array. So it does this origami sort of unfolding the antenna thing, and it's a 673-foot uh-huh, 673-square-foot uh-huh. antenna array. So it can detect wow. the signal from the 5G phone, right? And it must be doing some sort of uh, focusing of signal to be able to reach down to a particular handset. Uh, so this is particularly exciting if you're a telco where you could start to think about, I've got um, a legal obligation to provide phone and data coverage in remote areas, particularly in Western countries where the telcos get a license to operate. Yep. But part of that license is they have a minimum service obligation to connect everybody. And telcos don't want to connect everybody. They just want to connect the profitable everybody's. And so in this case, they could start to not have to build out mobile towers or pops and then have to line in power and data connections to those towers now they could say, oh, well, we'll just do a partnership with this company. And if you're in rural parts of our, you know, America or Europe or wherever, I can just, yeah, sure, you can connect to our satellite. <laughs> you know, so right. that's the immediately yep. useful thing. Um, and it sort of pitches the end of mobile towers or at least an, an end to building out the points of presence. But uh, these satellites are pretty specialized, as I understand it, and I believe they're fairly large. So these aren't micro satellites like the Starlink. We'll talk more about Starlink in a minute. Yeah, you're probably not going to launch thousands and thousands of these to uh, cover your your areas. It's going to be a handful. Yeah, yeah. As best I understand it, and I, and you know, it'll take me some time to dive into this technology more. I hadn't been tracking AST science before today, uh, particularly closely, and so I'm not a hundred percent sure. But my, I believe it's a large satellite. So this is. You know, this isn't Starlink shipping 50 satellites to orbit in a single Falcon 9 launch. This is a, you know, you you launch a dozen of these and then you cover the whole planet sort of thing. Right. Yep. And this was just a regular phone making a phone call and hitting the satellite. That's it. Well, it it was hard to get. And I'm just curious about things like impact on battery and power requirements so on for well, this. I don't talk about any of that. Uh, I think it's still very early. Um, right. Probably the encoding mechanisms and the antenna. There's going to be a bunch of, you know, things that you're going to have to do. Was this phone running a special uh, code in the baseband modem? But it was certainly just a standard handset. And the suggestion is that it certainly, you know, it's possible they were doing something fancy in the phone, but it was just an ordinary handset, maybe just with a software update in the baseband modem to use some sort of slightly Mm -hmm. different. But they say here, direct link to unmodified mobile phones and cellular devices here in in their uh, PDF file. Link in the show notes if you want to find out more. I think this is important because it sets up a. It's an interesting thing going on here where, you know, we see Starlink and uh, Kuiper, Amazon's Kuiper, uh, talking about you know these small microsatellites, but to use them you have to have these antenna dishes, to be able to go on. This goes the other way right. and says, well, okay, you don't need an antenna dish to be able to do that. This allows you to connect mobile devices. So, um, two types of space networking emerging where you can just use your handset and get some sort of low speed space networking connection just from straight from your your smartphone unmodified mm-hmm. or you can mm-hmm. go and get a starlink kuiper one web type base station and then focus it at the antenna and it'll track it and you know lots of microsatellites and is there enough room for both will customers buy both buy either you know is there enough use case for starlink like are a lot of people who are using smartphones now buying a Starlink base station just so their smartphone could get connected. Does this displace that? I don't know. That is not at all clear to me at this time. Uh, in more space news, uh, we're talking about Starlink. They're launching a new tranche of satellites uh, using next-gen optical networking. So when we talked about Starlink years ago, when it first started to launch, 
I, I did a whole deep dive into this fact that they were talking about using free space optical between satellites to form a two-tiered network. Uh, that hasn't worked out the way that SpaceX is. Uh, you know, Elon Musk talks a lot of, makes a lot of promises and then fails to deliver on them or delivers late. Uh, and in this case, the free space optical has only just started to fly. So these satellites that they put up are the first of what they call their V2 minis. They originally talking about version two satellites, which would be larger, slightly, you know, slightly larger, but faster, more capacity, and um, probably would be the first set of a two-tiered, you know, CLO infrastructure sort of design in space, sitting at a slightly higher orbit. This is not what that is, but it is allowing these V2 minis to start to use free space optics to route traffic between them. And so I think this is going to be partly because Starlink has to meet its obligations to the governments. It applies for and receives allocation of spectrum. And if it doesn't take up the offer of the spectrum by a certain time, they lose it. They lose that uh -huh. that uh, that right that's been given to them. And so it does have to do things to claim that we've made significant progress so that they can retain the rights to that spectrum that they've applied for and potentially paid for as well. So it's going to be interesting to see if it's going to be able to. They say that the launch of the V2 Mini increases the capacity by four times and as a result now has general availability for the entire US market geography. So if you were on a wait list for Starlink and in your area there was no availability because the cell was overloaded, there's too many people in that footprint, uh, you should expect to start seeing Starlink on the on the email to you saying, you can start giving us money now. So that's a good thing for people who <laughs> want to use Starlink. Absolutely. All right, our last story for the day, uh, also in space networking, Amazon's Project Kuiper is scheduled to launch its first two test satellites for space networking on Friday, October 6th. We're actually recording the morning of the proposed launch, so we'll have to follow up next week to see if it was successful. Uh, the stated goal is in the long term to launch a network of more than 3,000 satellites to provide uh, space-based broadband. Uh, this is the first uh, test of two satellites to get it up and, and see what they can get going. So Amazon wants to compete with Starlink, of, of course, and Kuiper is its uh, you know, uh, satellite networking capability. Kuiper has been able to build its satellites, design its satellites, done all the testing on the ground, but never launched one as yet. It's gained a bunch of approvals and spectrum allocation as per Starlink. And many of uh -huh. these approvals have an expiration within the next two or three years. I think, once again, companies making over-optimistic promises is not new in the technology space. I think, however, Kuiper was expecting Blue Origin to be able to fly its spaceships reliably to orbit. And that timeline is now far from certain. And if you're not keeping up with uh, billionaire uh, space fantasies, Blue Origin is Jeff Bezos's space company, <laughs> right. uh, like yeah. uh, SpaceX is Elon it's Musk. It's not yeah. Amazon's uh, rocket company and is actually a separate <laughs> enterprise. Um, they are definitely making progress, but they have not been able to uh, get as far along as I, I imagine they wanted to or thought they would. Kuiper was originally slated to use Blue Origin rockets, so Amazon doesn't want to put its satellites on SpaceX rockets, obviously. doesn't want to do the competitor. So it's been uh, spending a lot of money booking up other rocket companies, and it's now ready to launch its first test satellites. I think this is important because we need alternatives to Starlink, Drew. I think it's really important. And because you know we recently saw Elon Musk in Ukraine make some fairly arbitrary calls, and he does continue to make arbitrary calls about which countries he's going to go to next and so forth. And I think there's a lot of um, positioning amongst world governments, for example, and the militaries saying we need viable alternatives. So I think there's money there for Kuiper uh -huh. to have. Uh -huh. OneWeb in Europe uh -huh. is still going. Uh, it's still working on its satellites. But of course, the uh, European Space Agency is currently without a rocket. It uh, ended its Ariane 5 series of rockets. 
Uh, and but the Ariane six is not ready to take up a launching schedule yet, so we have to wait for that before the European Space Agency is, and OneWeb, I presumably, is going to start using a lot of the smaller rocket launch startups. You know, so there's a whole plethora of smaller rockets. So I think you'll see uh-huh. Kuiper and OneWeb and a range of other companies using the small, which is good for the ecosystem, I think, generally, or could be good for the ecosystem. But if you are planning on, you know, making space networking a strategic part of your networking. I think Amazon's probably your most likely alternative in the near future. So, and you probably want to. You want to have some diversity away from Starlink. Starlink does fail from time to time. Um, does have slowdowns. It certainly has capacity problems from time to time. They're very good at fixing them, as far as I know, and very good at building more capacity. So, there's no reason to be hating on Starlink at all. Um, but it, you know, if I was a if I was a network architect for a large company and I was betting something serious on this, I'd be nervous and starting to think about where my alternatives are. Yeah, you never want to be held captive by one provider. So competition in space networking is good. Competition in the broadband market in general is good. It's just, uh, as I was, you know, making notes on all these stories, I'm thinking like, is building a new terrestrial-based broadband network so onerous that uh, it, it's a better option to put thousands of satellites into space via rockets? Like, is pole access really that much of a hassle? Um, it's more of a, you've got to launch a lot. Like, if you're launching 3,000 satellites, that, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, is it more effective to have to build an entire rocket industry to do this as opposed to just build out more broadband on the earth? Uh, well, you know, you don't know. I, I, I think that there's going to be all of that. I think that it does make sense to do it on earth. And I think the bulk of it will be terrestrial. But I think there's a there's a market, a big enough market to do space networking that there is an underserved market in rural locations. Uh, Starlink, for example, has been you know, very widely taken up in desert regions in the Arctic, Antarctic, mm-hmm. you know, remote parts of the world, huge, well, you know, total revolution yeah. for small marginalized communities that live in remote locations can all of a sudden have, you know, be sharing 500 megs worth of bandwidth. <laughs> you know, right. like, right. Um, is there more money there? Yeah, I think, I think there's still plenty. Um, whether, it, I don't think it'll ever replace terrestrial, but I think there's that, that use case, you know, boats on the ocean, you know, where terrestrial doesn't sure. work, you know, airplanes, yep. you know, again. So I think it opens up a new market. I think it replaces and it obviates, you know, terrestrial networking is expensive, running cables uh, out to locations and building out pops and broadbands, whereas satellites simplify some of that to some extent. Yeah, I guess so. All right. Well, that wraps up uh, the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsor conversation with Palo Alto Networks on SD-WAN for retail stores. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk with sponsor Palo Alto Networks about SD-WAN for retail locations. So from securing payment card data to supporting customer Wi-Fi to connecting a multitude of IoT devices, a robust, reliable WAN is a must for retail. We're going to talk with Palo Alto Networks about how SD-WAN can help retail locations get and keep shoppers in stores. Our guest is Anmal Das, Senior Manager for SD-WAN at Palo Alto Networks. Uh, Anmal, welcome to the podcast. So if I think about a retail branch, obviously you want you know sort of the right products in the store and maybe good salespeople. What makes the WAN a priority as well. Kind of what we're seeing these days is, so obviously we had the pandemic where all of the retail locations were shut down, right? We all became 100% online shoppers. And now that the pandemic is kind of behind us, we're getting back into these retail locations. So most of the retailers out there, they're trying to bring customers back into the stores, right? They're trying to bring customers back into the shops. And what they're trying to do is get away from, hey, the customer goes into the retail location to browse and then goes and leaves the location, goes back home and just buys the same <laughs> stuff over the internet. Right. Or 
you know, worst case scenario buys it from a competitor over the internet. They could just go into the showroom to do some comparison shopping. Right. Right. So how do you get people back into the retail location and then deliver kind of a unique or next generation experience so that they're going to keep coming back into the stores, staying in the stores and then buying just your products. So that's kind of the challenge that retailers are facing, attracting those customers back into the store and they're doing it through these unique experiences. Also, we're seeing very much a focus on technology in terms of analytics and video. We're seeing a lot of, you know, both security and for data on where people are walking through the store. We're seeing more of this, you know, what we would have called five years ago, IOT, you know, cameras doing analysis of where people are walking, which aisles are people walking down, which ones aren't, because they want to put the high selling products in the high use aisles, because that would tend to move more products. Um, there's also this move away from, uh, you know, old style HVAC, which was just sort of like there and there was a service contract to continuously monitored and they need internet access or they need access back to somebody and they're sharing the same network. It's a, it's a much more complicated environment in retail, which I think is what you're, what you're drawing out. Yeah, it's, it's extremely complicated. And so I think you touched on one of the key pillars there. It's the analytics piece, right? So let's have these IoT devices. And we've seen this proliferation of IoT devices. You know, we kind of saw it first in healthcare and manufacturing. and But now we're seeing a proliferation of this in retail as well, which has accelerated through the pandemic. So one use case is exactly what you just said, which is helping the retailers become smarter. So it's yeah. gathering the data through these smart devices, the analytics, where where customers are walking, what are they looking at, what are they buying, et cetera, et cetera. Also, I've read about costs, you know, this idea of I want to be able to run my stores at a much higher utilization. That means I want to have less managers and more staff on the ground. I need better tools. I need displays in the stores. I need, you know, those visual displays that used to be like a, a video recorder with a, yes. with a VHS cassette in it. Now what we want is display technology. Uh, I, I'm thinking of stores I've been into where the fridge doors have ads in them, you know, <laughs> you know, and then display ads over the tills and all that sort of stuff. It's, and I mean, the tills themselves are so much more complicated. Is SD-WAN a part of that as well? Yeah, no, 100%. So that's all about, in addition to analytics, it's how do you deliver that kind of a next-gen experience to these customers coming back into the mm. store? So that's where the digital signage, things like smart mirrors, things like frictionless checkouts. So these kind mm -hmm. of next-generation IoT devices. And then also some of the things that you just touched upon. For instance, mm. providing the customer expertise in the store that they're not going to just get online or get somewhere else. So when I come into the store you know, got a question about a product, I can go to the nearest employee and ask them the question. Yeah. If they don't yeah. know the answer though, can they easily access all of the other, their colleagues from across the country or across the world? Find well, the I'm thinking more person. in this case, banking would be a good one because we're seeing the branches, you know, you can do certain things in a branch, but if you can't, maybe you need to talk to a specialist advisor. I'm thinking like a mortgage advisor. You can't just talk to that in open space. You might want to go into a booth. Uh, one of the things that happens here in the UK is you go into a booth to talk to a mortgage broker on a video call, for example, or some other specialist financial advisor so that you don't have to either send somebody else to your house, or you don't have to make an appointment. You just 
call into a, a specialist trained operator. So, I mean, the, the idea of the branch is changing is yeah. I think is the thing to take away. Yeah, I know. And that's driving, like you said, that's driving requirements, right? All of those things that we talked about, the IoT devices, the analytics, providing expertise that you wouldn't necessarily get online, mm-hmm. the banking example, you know, there's exa- other examples in retail. That's driving these IoT devices. That's driving increased requirements, both from a network perspective, from a performance perspective, that's delivering availability or reliability requirements. So all of those things are driving throughput at the branch. And that's where something like SD-WAN comes in to kind of deliver that experience, both for the retailer and for the customers that are in those branches. And the SD-WAN can deliver that experience because we've got multiple links we can utilize and we can also measure the performance of those links to make sure critical apps are getting the performance they need. Yeah. I mean, so again, if you talk about SD-WAN, right, it's and delivering it for those experiences at the retailers, it's going to be, first of all, reliability. So reliable connectivity, you need to provide secure access and then protect those users and all of those IoT devices. So obviously reliability is going to be huge here, right? If I lose the ability to take credit card information, I lose revenue, right? It's as simple as that. If I'm a customer and I'm in one of these stores and I'm using a smart mirror and there's delay and I'm having a bad user experience, I may never even come back into that store. So reliability and performance are going to be huge. There's one other part here. It's also cost. We're seeing a real focus in the retail sector on cost of the branch. On one hand, they want to use the branch, but on the other hand, they don't want to be overspending to achieve it. And one of the aspects of SD-WAN that we seem to have stopped talking about recently is how much cheaper it is. That's right. I mean, I think <laughs> I think to your point, when we first started talking about SD-WAN five or six years ago, it was reduced MPLS with direct internet access mm-hmm. or less expensive links, and you have that ROI you know, now that's kind of become table stakes. Like a lot of Mm. customers have already moved away from MPLS. So it comes to kind of those other things that we've been talking about, the performance, the the availability, the reliability, but you're right. I mean, cost is still Mm. there as well. We're still seeing a lot of MPLS that's kind of out there in the market, even in retail locations. But the key here, the thing that I don't think we often talk about enough especially with Prisma Access and the way Palo Alto does their WAN and that whole idea of the blades and all the software that's cloud-managed, is it's so easy to operate compared to MPLS. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of services that uh, a retail branch has to provide. It's handling IoT, it's handling uh, cash registers, it's maybe providing in-store Wi-Fi, and you've got to separate those networks. So can I get uh, segmentation out of SD-WAN in a retail environment? Yes, um, so absolutely. So two of the use cases that we're seeing out there for SD-WAN, so we're seeing this proliferation of 4G and 5G, right? So we're seeing this both in pop-ups and malls. So mm-hmm. at any of these locations, you want to do, so you got P, you got different types of traffic coming in. You got your guest Wi-Fi at these locations. You've got PCIe data. So you can do segmentation with SD-WAN. This is something that we've done not just recently, not just with IoT, but this is something that we've done you know, seven years ago, 10 years ago, when we first came out with the platform. We have the zone-based firewall, so you can do that L7 segmentation mm. on the SD-WAN, right? So segmenting the PCI traffic from the guest Wi-Fi or from the other traffics that you have at the, at the retail locations. And this is because... Palo Alto Networks is a security company, right? It's just part of the deal. It's not like I have to suddenly build an SD-WAN for my connectivity. I can My firewalling is built into the SD-WAN product. It's built in. That's exactly mm. right. 
right? From day one, we have a, basically a subscription that you can put on the SD-WAN, a zone-based firewall subscription that does this for you. Actually, most of our customers that we have, um, they don't even need necessarily a next-gen, a Palo Alto next-gen firewall. They're running SD-WAN and they've got nor- most of their traffic is north-south. They want to do segmentation of that traffic. They're running the the zone-based firewall subscription on top of the SD-WAN. So some of our largest customers are doing exactly that. And ML, you touched on 4G, 5G. I think it's important to note that as well. When we're talking about SD-WAN and the multiple links it supports, we're not just talking about having to pull a wire somewhere. You can throw in essentially a SIM card and get connectivity, which means you can get a retail location in a place that doesn't necessarily have a hardwired connection. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we're, I think, I don't know if we're the only or one of the only, but um, we have an integrated 4G, 5G appliance, right? Right into the SD-WAN ION. So 4G mm-hmm. and 5G, I mean, when you talk about retail, that's a, I mean, that's a huge UK use case. Like if you look at pop-ups and malls. So for instance, mm-hmm. if I'm a mall, if I'm a retailer in the, in the mall, I may have a single line coming in. So if it's the middle of Thanksgiving and that line goes down, well, now I got to go to back to manual credit card swipers, <laughs> oh boy. right? Which is just not going to happen. So retailers are looking to 4G and 5G alternatives. So we have that, they have that extra link, that mm-hmm. metered backup. So we're delivering that with the ION, which is integrated. Yeah. And we're one of the only ones that have that integrated. And the other use case for 4G, 5G is, is these pop-ups. So more and more retailers are doing these pop-ups, right? So for instance, you know, you mentioned banking, earlier, right? If I'm at mm-hmm. an event like a concert or something, there's no there's no ATM at that event. So I need to pull up in a truck to provide those ATM services. You know, I got a retrofitted ATM machine that it's got 5G. You know, other examples. So we have a retailer that does pop-ups in grocery stores. So they'll set up a booth inside or outside the grocery store. They don't have any connections um, into the hard line that's in the grocery store. So they're using our ion with the 4G, 5G mm-hmm. that's already built in. So another example, pop-ups in malls. As part of the security capabilities, does the Palo Alto Networks SD-WAN tie into their uh, cloud-delivered security capabilities that Prisma Access? Yeah, so we have, um, you know, between Prisma SD-WAN and Prisma Access, that's extremely tight integration, right? So it's single-click integration from the Prisma SD-WAN into our S into the SSE environment through access. So, I mean, you basically just tag the Prisma SD-WAN node, right? It auto connects to the closest Prisma access pop around the world. So you have that automatic integration. So we've unified the management, we've unified the policy, and we've, more importantly, we've unified the event correlation and the event monitoring and the event isolation between Mm -hmm. those two. So it's same app ID, same user ID, same device ID. So when we talk about retail locations, where this comes into play again is IoT, but more importantly, delivering security against the IoT. So Yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, the biggest thing I think about modern SD-WAN or SASE, when you start talking about Prisma, you're also saying, I can send all my traffic off to be scanned and logged. So I can see whatever anybody did in the branch network if I choose to. Um, I can use the application recognition features of the Prisma software. I mean, keep in mind that Palo Alto was one of the first companies to come out with an application firewall. So these SD-WAN appliances have that capability and can recognize. And you can just say like, okay, I need to add security to this. 
I'm going to do firewalling. I'm going to do content inspection. I'm going to do rule matching. But I've also got the centralized um, configuration management. So you can say things like, I want to allow access to Azure. Microsoft Office 365, and that's just one rule. You don't have to sit down and work out IP addresses and try and get the rules out to every appliance. It's just one rule for the whole setup. Yeah, it's yeah, it's that fingerprinting and the device mm. profiling. So I can tell, hey, this is a video camera versus this is a smart mirror mm. versus this is a credit card swiper, right? Mm. So I'm delivering that because I'm fingerprinting all of those thousands of devices that are at those edge locations. And then... To your point, right, you're sending that to Prisma Access and then Prisma Access is doing auto segmentation and coming up with segmentation recommendations that we can then implement back on SD-WAN. So, for instance, this specific device, I see that we have a certain OS. I'm going to make recommendations on upgrading that specific device to the latest OS because it's got Mm -hmm. such and such security risk or I'm doing such and such security profiling against that specific device Mm -hmm. in order to do continuous inspection and verification against that traffic. So those are some of the things that are important. A, we're fingerprinting the device so we know exactly what it is. We're sending it to Prisma Access because we have the tightest recommendation. And then I can come up with those very specific recommendations against those specific devices. I think that the key here is operational part too. I mean, all those things are great. But when I was running a, a network that had 500 branches, my ability to keep 500 devices in synchronous, like keep the configuration standardized across all of that estate was enormously difficult. And to work out firewall rules that I could push across the estate was very difficult. And this is where Prisma has these great operational features that simplify that a lot. And when you start adding security into the situation, then that's where the complexity just goes exponential, like you're talking about, right? So that's where that single integration, Prisma Access, Prisma SD-WAN, all of this stuff that we just talked about, the fingerprinting, the segmentation recommendations, all of that is done without a whole bunch of user interaction or a bunch of operational interaction. And so, but that's a common theme across SD-WAN in general, right? It's the zero touch provisioning. It's the simplification of the day two operations. It's now troubleshooting is easier. Identifying day two attacks is easier because of the visibility. It's all of that stuff. That operational benefit is kind of a common theme across all of this. Mm-hmm. That's one of the key differentiators or value points. Uh, one last question then. I presume given everything we've talked about around observability, um, the ability to identify applications, the ability to set and monitor policies, uh, I assume because we're generating a lot of data here, there's also presumably a tie into machine learning and AI capabilities. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. So the whole visibility aspect and the troubleshooting aspect of this is is important. So again, we've talked about between SD-WAN and, and Prisma Access, we have the same app ID, same user ID, same device IDs, right? So now what I'm able to do is when an incident happens, which it always will, when an incident happens, I can take a look at, I've unified the data between all of these three different data lakes, my monitoring data lake, my security data lake, and my application and my network data lake. So now I can pinpoint the incident exactly where it occurs. So I can map out the workflow of the application. I can take a look at that application from a per segment and per hop basis, drill into each segment and look at exactly the health of the application on a per segment and per hop basis. Uh. 
And now not only can I identify the incident and I can identify no matter where it is, right? It could be my own network, could be the carrier network. It could be something at the application that's misbehaving. So I've identified the root cause very quickly and through the AI powered approach of unifying those data lakes, now I can actually resolve many of those incidents on my own. And if I can't resolve it, then at least I can provide a rich set of playbooks and I can identify exactly where the problem is and give those playbooks to whoever the user is that's going to resolve the incident on that segment or that hop. Right. And so, that, that kind of detailed feedback can really help speed up troubleshooting. Exactly. Well, that does bring us to the end of this conversation. Uh, if you're interested in finding out more about what Palo Alto can do in regards to SD-WAN, you can go to paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy slash SD-WAN. That is paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy slash SD-WAN. And we'll also have that link and others in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, thanks them all for joining us. And thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. And most importantly, thank you for listening. The Packer Pushers Network has this and many more free technical podcasts on topics including networking, cloud, Kubernetes, IT strategy, and more. You can find it all at packetpushers.net. You can also find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.